People are making six, seven, eight bucks an hour. These first responders, we all clap for as they come down the street because they've allowed us to make it. What's happening? They deserve a minimum wage of $15. Welcome to this special bonus edition of the New Hampshire Journal podcast brought to you by the Josiah Bartlett Center for Public Policy. Check them out at jbartlett.org. The topic is Thursday night's presidential debate. Drew Klein, the president and El Jefe of the Josiah Bartlett Center, did not want to talk about the debate before it happened, but you changed your mind, Drew. Why? Well, I didn't really want to watch the debate. That was the main reason. But, <laughs> but I did, and it turned out to be pretty informative. I got to tell you, it was like my daughter told me that her high school was doing Les Mis, and I'm going, oh, my gosh, it's going to be a disaster. You know, a bunch of kids, they can't yeah. sing that well. What are the sets going to look like? I show up at the school, and it's a it's a Tony suburban school with some money, so – it was fun. I, I had my hands over my eyes, you know, like starting. And then as they went, oh, my gosh, this is actually pretty good. And I felt the same with the debate. I had my hands over my eyes. And then, oh, this is not the horrific train wreck that I was expecting. Yeah. For the first, maybe the first quarter of it, it was actually very good, very informative. They stuck to it, policy and facts. And then it kind of fell apart a little bit in the middle. And then it deteriorated <laughs> as you went on. But on the whole, it was productive. And I think the reason was it showed it. Both candidates were able to talk, which was hugely important because that's the only way you get to learn what they actually think about things. And they have to explain themselves on their feet. And sometimes that can get them into trouble. Mm -hmm. And they both did that, explaining their position. So you finally got an understanding, a much better understanding of the policy and philosophical differences between the two candidates, which you didn't really get that well in the last debate. I'm sorry, so I was I was sense, busy. Was I'm sorry, important. I missed that last part you said, Drew. I'm writing my apology note to Germany. Sorry, didn't mean to be so mean to Hitler. Didn't know we were friends before the war. So I'm going to be that sending that over. Yeah, comment. that was weird when from Joe Biden. Biden. For those who didn't watch, Biden said, hey, we were friends with Hitler before the war. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that's true. Uh, I'm pretty <laughs> sure FDR was not a big Hitler fan. But I want to ask you, when you say that we saw the divide, what did you think was the most significant substantive divide between the two candidates on stage Thursday night? I think that's hard to say. I mean, everybody's going to have a different individual takeaway from that. But I think in the big picture, you could see Trump basically saying we need a lighter touch on the economy, on COVID. We need to focus on the cure, focus on vaccines. But we really need to not get too crazy about lockdowns. Lockdowns have costs. And there was this general sense that you know, the government can provide some leadership and provide some focus on the vaccine, but we don't want to get back to lockdowns. And and that was a general philosophical understanding about lots of other things. So we talked about minimum wage, talked about fracking, talked about lots of other topics where Trump's approach was lighter touch, less regulation. And Biden was a lot more focused on health care, on all the other policies they talked about, having the government intervene, the federal government intervene very, very heavily to control things, to mandate things. Um, he was a little cagey on the shutdowns. He had previously said he would be willing immediately to shut it all down if the numbers got bad. He backed away from that a little bit. But still, the overall approach was, hey, the federal government ought to be in charge. Federal government ought to be energetic and aggressive in forcing things and pushing things and that, I think, is your big takeaway philosophically from it. Yeah, I'm not far off. The big philosoph the big divide that I saw laid out is the voice of the people who are saying, look, we get it. COVID stinks. 
but we there's stuff that just has to happen. My kids can't not go to school because it hurts my kids. I can't not go to work because it hurts my family. I can't not open my business because my business will go out of business. And Biden never articulated his uh, acknowledgement that there is a cost to the strategy that he uh, is now supporting of more yeah, aggressive one of the, action. And one well, of the, let's, let's finish. Okay. I just think that one of the, the challenges that people who want a lighter touch, and obviously the Josiah Bartlett Center, broadly speaking, is a free market-oriented facility. A lot of times, as you know, when you're talking about free markets, you're not promising people you're going to get something for doing this. What you're saying is that by setting the markets free, the net outcome will be better. And that's a harder case to articulate that by letting you know people return to some normalcy, children will be healthier, blah, blah, blah. But the other side has something they can point to, which is cases, numbers, look, chart. And that's and, and of all the people to articulate a nuanced, <laughs> difficult argument, Donald Trump's probably near the bottom of my list on that. Well, the free market position is often really dependent on how well you articulate it. Um, it, it like you said, it's easier to say, well, we just want to mandate these good results. And a free market position typically is, look, um, if you take mandates out of the picture and let people come up with their own solutions independently, you usually get much better results. That's a little trickier to articulate, especially in these stupid debate formats, which have you one minute answers, which, uh, as we know, we hate. So. Um, one of the most interesting takeaways, though, from this debate is something you and I have talked about in the past. It wasn't that long ago where if you had been forcefully out there saying in public, look, lockdowns have costs. The coronavirus, as with everything else, is about trade-offs. If you have, if you go too far in lockdowns, you're going to impose lots of costs. You're going to have economic costs, especially for lower income families. You're going to have psychological costs. You're going to have physical costs with people not being able to get into the hospital and get to their regular routine appointments. That was a very um, seldom articulated position but not long ago because people were afraid of getting called heartless. They were afraid of getting called crazy. And last night in the debate, ABC News articulated that position forcefully and said there are costs. And I think that is a real breakthrough. And that follows by a couple of weeks, by 10 days, the um, World Health Organization basically acknowledging there are costs and lockdowns are an extreme measure that we shouldn't take lightly and we shouldn't rush to. That realization among these the elites that the beginning of this were telling us that that was something you shouldn't consider, that the only consideration was deaths, um, that's a huge change in a couple of months. I also thought it was interesting to see the parallels between the Biden, you know, kind of top down. We need to step in aggressively approach at the national level and then here at the state level in New Hampshire. You know, uh, Senator Dan Feltis has been critical of of uh, Governor Sununu because rather than having a state uh, system for school reopening where the state determines the metrics, the state decides what you can do. Yeah. Uh, as we, as uh, Feltus was mocked for, he had this 10% change in hospitalization that would uh, shut down all the schools, which unfortunately someone failed to do the math. There are about 10 hospitalizations on a typical day, which means a single new person would shut down yeah. every school in the state. Uh, well, you know, which, Biden way, said he want. well, Biden said he wanted a national standard. We need a national standard yeah. for schools to yeah. reopen. And I just wonder you know, it sounds good for, for, to deal with fear. Oh, my God, he wants to do something. Yay, I feel warm and fuzzy. How many people do you think would agree 
if you they if you know they got a note from DC saying, "Dear New Hampshire, this is what you have to do with your schools." And how many uh, school administrators from Coaz County down to Salem would agree if they got a note from a Governor Feltus saying, "I've decided this is what you're going to do with your schools." Is that really what people want? Well, we can already see that the parents don't want that. I mean, you have protests in Nashua. We have protests, um, or, or I don't know if they count as protests yet, but a lot of parents uh, speaking out in places like Exeter. So um, it's clear parents appreciate that local approach. Parents want schools open and a national approach makes far less sense than even a statewide approach. I don't know why you would have these national standards that would apply across the board when you can see varying rates in different states, varying policies, having different effects in different states. Let them, you know, the experiment in democracy work. Um, that is federalism, and that's a much better approach generally. You don't want a one-size-fits-all statewide approach to much of anything, uh, or national approach, rather. So I thought that was that was telling. I want to ask but, you about energy policy because it, it's one of those things that I maybe I focus too much on it, and so I see stuff that yeah. other people don't. But uh, Joe Biden said repeatedly, I never said I'm going to ban fracking. Of course, he repeatedly said it in the past. He maybe he's changed his mind. It's, you know, it's one of those things like Trump has a million of where you don't really know yes. what the final where he finally landed. But I think he has committed to banning fracking because he committed yet again to zero emissions by either 2025, 2030. It must be 2035. Yeah. Well, you can't do zero emissions and have fracking. You can do one or well, the other. So Biden has I mean, I believe I was at a Biden event in New Hampshire where he said he wanted to get rid of all fossil fuels and, and get rid of fracking. I mean, he's been he's made that case multiple times. There's no way to escape it. Um, he's played a little bit. Um, I don't know. I don't want to say fast and loose. I think he's just changed his verbiage a little bit in the weather, how gradual that transition would be, whether it would be immediate. He certainly hinted to Bernie Sanders types that he would it would be very quick. Um, and to others, he's hinted that it might be a slow process. But he is absolutely on record multiple times saying he wanted to get rid of all fossil fuels and get rid of fracking. Well, <clears throat> just to give you some perspective, and we've written about this in New Hampshire with um, politicians here wanting to get rid of or not allow pipelines and get rid of natural gas. Um, coal consumption in the U.S. peaked in 2005. It Production of coal peaked in 1998. It's down 40%. Consumption has fallen 50% since 2005. That is all because of fracking, almost entirely. A little bit of renewals. It's almost entirely because of fracking. Natural gas production hit a record high in the, U in the United States in 2017, then broke that record in 2018, then broke that record in 2019. It is now the primary energy source in the United States. It surpasses crude oil by almost 10 quadrillion BTUs. U.S. energy production, if you go by natural gas, crude oil, it's like natural gas is 34%, crude oil is 31%, coal is down to 14%. It's just a few percentage points higher than renewables. That's what fracking has accomplished. It has almost knocked coal out of the picture. In New Hampshire, coal is only used a few times a year at peak energy production times. And the only reason they're still using coal is because we don't have enough pipelines to get enough natural gas here. If we had the pipelines to have a steady supply of natural gas right. and some storage facilities, we wouldn't use coal at all in all of New England. It's natural gas that's done that. It's so what I hear you saying, Drew, is that you want to kill the planet and you hate Earth. <laughs> well, I want to make sure so I got natural that right. Gas, right. Natural gas produces about 117 pounds of CO2 per million BTUs. Coal is 200 pounds. 
fuel oil is 160 pounds. If we could switch all home fuel oil to natural gas with pipelines, you'd have about a 27% reduction immediately in carbon emissions in New Hampshire. I mean, that's the power of switching to a cleaner burning transitional fuel. And the stat that I love that freaks people out because they just don't know it is that more than 40% of New Hampshire homes still use fuel oil. People have no idea it's that high. People have no idea. It's huge. In the rest of the country, natural gas is the main um, source of energy. In New Hampshire, we still rely heavily on oil, which is dirty burning, Mm -hmm. and it's bad. So, But the other thing that's really interesting about that is that Texas is the number one producing natural gas state. Pennsylvania is second. Oklahoma is third. So, um, look, West Virginia is in the top ten. I believe it's Arkansas. Is in is in the top ten. So you have a couple of states there that are in play, especially Pennsylvania, which has, if you count all the tangential jobs that are related to fracking in Pennsylvania, um, some estimates have it around three hundred thousand jobs. So it's a big deal. It's a big industry. Not only is it transitioning us away from dirty burning fuels, but it is employing a lot of people. And Biden is saying he's going to wipe out those jobs rather quickly. I think that was a clarifying moment for a lot of folks. I'm not saying that it's going to cost him Pennsylvania, but I've seen some people speculating that. And um, it's certainly not going to help him in Pennsylvania. Another topic that's big in New Hampshire that also made its way to the big debate stage Thursday night, the minimum wage. New Hampshire Democrats have tried to institute a state minimum wage here in New Hampshire. They've been foiled by Republicans and uh, Governor Chris Sununu. Uh, and last night, that was uh, Joe Biden was wailing away, talking about 15 a uh, dollar an hour minimum wage. By the way, Drew, did you hear him saying, we got people out there working for six, seven bucks an hour? I'm like, yeah, uh, well, maybe in 1973 <laughs> when you were first sent to the He said the frontline workers like police were working for yeah, six bucks not, an hour. No, that's that's not true. Uh, <clears throat> so in New Hampshire, it was in the second congressional district debate last night too, the minimum wage. And, you know, there are plans to push it to $12 an hour and to $15 an hour. Um, Chris Pappas voted for a minimum wage that would you know, eliminate a lot of restaurant industry jobs. So first thing Biden said, it doesn't close businesses. That's not true. A Harvard study from a couple of years ago, not, you know, some right wing think tank, Harvard Business School study showed it, in fact, does close restaurants. The minimum wage will close restaurants. And the reason is you're going to force restaurants that barely scraping by to pay more for labor than they need to. And obviously you're going to close it. So. But the Congressional Budget Office did a study released last year, and Biden ought to know this. Somebody on his staff ought to point this stuff out to him. Let me just quote the Congressional Budget Office. Quote, income falls for some families because other workers lose their jobs and business owners must absorb at least some of the higher costs of labor. For those reasons, the net effect of a minimum wage increase is to reduce average family income. That's the Congressional Budget Office. They also go on to say, quote, by increasing the cost of employing low-wage workers, a higher minimum wage generally leads employers to reduce the size of their workforce, end quote. So the CBO has analyzed all the academic studies on this and concluded it cuts average family income because people lose their jobs and it cuts jobs. And Harvard says it closes businesses. So this is pretty darn clear. And yet we keep see politicians pushing it, pushing it, pushing it and ignoring the research. 
And it, it's really frustrating because groups like ours that try to point out the research and say, look, you're going to harm people get called heartless <laughs> because we don't want to just raise the ways for everybody. Like it's magic. Like you just wave a magic wand and nobody will lose their jobs and everybody will just have to pay because of course restaurants and movie theaters have all this disposable cash sitting around in the bank account that they're just greedily hoarding. Now, if you want to close every movie theater in the country immediately right now, when most of them are barely hanging on, pass a $15 minimum wage. They will all be gone. Uh, very good point. Uh, and by the way, you mentioned the restaurant uh, issue. I would recommend people go to NewHampshireJournal.com. We have a, a piece about the ongoing controversy with Congressman Chris Pappas and the issue of restaurants, wages, a uh, minimum wage increase, and the tipping wage, if you will, or the, the tip yeah. thing. That's, that's part of the fight because it— Tipping wages, you've got industries that rely on it, and the vast majority of people who work for tips in the food service industry do not want a minimum wage. They want their tips because they do far better, which brings me up to the other thing that it's hard for me, and I admit this is a bias, so I apologize. I have a hard time taking people seriously when I talk about minimum wage at all because nobody works for minimum wage. And we had a piece. Now, this was before <laughs> the, the COVID-19 thing, so obviously we're in a, in a different moment. But before COVID-19... Fewer than 10,000 people work for minimum wage in the state of New Hampshire, according to the Economic and Labor Market Information Bureau. Fewer than 10,000 people people out of 1.3 million people. Nobody works for the minimum wage. Yeah, minimum wage truly is an entry-level wage. It is primarily paid at restaurants. And at places like movie theaters where they hire lots of teenagers, there are occasionally people who are middle-aged who work for it. And they also often are not their primary breadwinner. So the idea that you have people working um, their whole careers at minimum wage and barely struggling about is, is a myth. I mean, may happen to a tiny number of people, but they're, they're not representative of the, the large portion no. of people who make the minimum and wage. So why and are New Hampshire, aren't that many in New so, Hampshire. So why so many organizations in New Hampshire are pushing to change a wage that nobody gets because they're already making 10 bucks an hour without anything. It's because many of them have union contracts that are linked to yeah. uh, the, the wage. And when you change the minimum wage, other wages go up. So you're not going to help some kid whose job is a well, let's face it. By the way, there are certain jobs like greeter at Walmart, nothing against a job. It's worth minimum wage. You literally stand there and say, hi, you know, uh, the guy, yeah. the car- parking lot attendant at a parking lot, you literally sit in a box and take, dollars you know paying minimum wage for that makes complete sense that guy's not going to benefit from this the guy who's really going to benefit is the guy who's already making decent jack on a government contract and he's going to see that bump immediately up and the taxpayers are going to have to cover the difference right and then you're just going to see restaurants other employers especially and you can already see this if you go into any mcdonald's they have the kiosk there they're already eliminating jobs to go to automated service and that's just going to increase. You, you you raise the cost of labor beyond what an employer is willing to pay for it, beyond what it's worth to the employer. They're not going to use labor. They're going to find other ways to get around that. And lastly, I want to, we want to talk uh, some rank punditry, as our buddy Jonah Goldberg calls it on his podcast. What do you think the impact of last night's debate was on the uh, presidential race broadly and on the race here in New Hampshire? I I think I don't know if we're going to agree on this, but I don't think it changed very much. The only impact I can see, first of all, I just assume that a lot of a lot fewer people watched this debate because they were turned off by the first one, and that's a, a problem <laughs> because this one was much better and much more informative. But I think on the whole, 
if you were a Republican and you were looking for some reassurance, some reason to vote for Trump, and um, you wanted to not feel like you were voting for the person who was in the first debate, this might give you that comfort and that reassurance. I think that might be the big takeaway here. So uh, as a guy who used to run campaigns for a living, this was a big win for Trump in this sense. Demoralized possible Trump voters who have not had any good news in a while tuned in saw their guy and he didn't stink and so it was he was there he landed some punches they wanted to see him land biden made some mistakes that kind of reconfirmed what they wanted to already believe about biden whether it's true or not and so i think the one winner in the debate drew is some state rep in some swing (laughs) district in new hampshire who's going to get that extra you know 112 votes that she needs to get to get over the top. I think that that you're not going to it's not going to change the national race very much. Uh, I think the, the numbers are going to tighten just because historically they tend to tighten as partisans come home. But I don't think Trump or Biden changed the trajectory of the race at all. But uh, there might I, I bet there's probably somewhere there's a congressman or congressperson who's going to be a Republican who would have been a Democrat if Trump had blown this performance last night. So that's that's yeah, as far that's as I want to take it. Yeah, that's that's it. And that's as far as I'm prepared to take this podcast as well. I'm done with you, Drew Klein. By the way, where can people find you and your brilliant uh, uh, intellectual stylings? <laughs> well, we have a lot more research on the minimum wage and on energy and other things at jbartlett.org. So if you want some New Hampshire policy meet, you can go there and find all you want. And you can sign up on the Contact Us page for our weekly email newsletter. And you can find the New Hampshire Journal at nhjournal.com. We have a daily newsletter, and of course, uh, news stories pop up every single day. Thank you so much for listening. For Drew Klein of the Josiah Bartlett Center for Public Policy and me, Michael Graham, thanks for listening to the New Hampshire Journal Podcast. (laughs) 